0: My name is Ali, I'm a doctor and YouTuber, I'm Taymor, I'm a data scientist and writer, and you're listening to Not Overthinking, the weekly podcast where we think about happiness, creativity and the human condition. Are you leading us in? Hello and welcome to Not Overthinking. Taymor, how are you doing today?
1: Doing pretty well, yeah. Um, yesterday I went and hung out in an outdoor space with some friends and that was really nice. Uh, it's kind of got me back on the real human interaction hype. So I feel, yeah i think i felt energized after that
0: you know I felt energized after human interaction yeah
1: yeah excellent whereas i think uh, yeah, a lot of the time everything just seems kind of futile there's like this sort of sense of like what's the point of all of this you know yeah. <laughs> whereas yeah kind of hanging out with people again it was like oh okay this this is the point <laughs>
0: and there was a phrase i heard which is that these days life seems like just one long zoom call yeah yeah exactly <laughs> how about you yeah things are going pretty good um I feel like last night I finally kind of uh, sorted out what I'm going to do with my life. So I, really? I feel sort of excited and, and, and motivated moving forward. What's the, what is it? What's um, plan? One of the things I'm going to do my, with my life is continue my uh, my uh, commitment to lifelong learning uh, by taking some more classes on Skillshare, who are very kindly sponsoring this video, this, this episode rather. <laughs> um, if you haven't heard by now, if you've been living under a rock, Skillshare is a fantastic platform uh, with loads of online classes from all sorts of topics ranging from video editing to illustration to graphic design to loads of business stuff loads of creative stuff um you should definitely check out skillshare so go to skillshare.com slash not overthinking to get a two-month free trial of skillshare um because i've got three of my own classes on skillshare i've got a really long one about how to study for exams another really long one about how to use anki flashcards to learn anything and another really long one about how to edit videos and sneak peek next week i am releasing a brand new productivity class on skillshare so this is the first you guys are hearing of it on on the podcast so if you sign up for your free two-month free trial of skillshare you will kind of have enough time to watch all my other classes and it'll just, <laughs> yeah. it'll just be really good and it'll support the chat support the podcast so yeah help us out guys go to skillshare.com slash not overthinking how was that?
1: Nice. I think that was pretty good. <laughs> how Thanks. many Skillshare classes do you have now?
0: Mate, three so far. The productivity one is coming out next week. We've got a second productivity one coming out next month. How, how much work is it to
1: turn out one of these? Is it like a day of just like writing the script and
0: filming it or something? It's overall, these. it's 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 about two days of work in total on, on my end. And then the editing is done by, well, the editor. Right. Uh, so yeah, it just takes a lot of effort to kind of plan the class and then sort of get the have the motivation slash discipline to just sort of sit down for an entire day and just kind of bash through like 50 videos filming one after the other. Yeah. Um, But it's fun. That's pretty cool, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's what I'm doing with my life. <laughs> commitment to lifelong learning. Wait, is that the li- that's the life plan? No, that's not the life. Plan. What, what was the life plan, or was that a complete was that a complete joke just for the ad read? <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> the life plan was is that I have decided I'm going to take the USMLE and move to America. Really? Yeah. Wasn't this already the life plan? This was partially the life plan. i have been sort of toying with it, but I hadn't. I was sort of umming and eyeing about it because I was thinking, well, you know, America isn't all that it's hyped up to be anyway. You know, life in the UK is pretty chill. It's pretty fun. Uh, I was sort of in two minds about whether I would want to stay in medicine at all. So, over the last few weeks, I've realized that A, I do want to stay in medicine just in a part time capacity. B, I think emergency medicine is now the way forward in terms of the specialty that I want to do. And C, that going to America at the very least would be an interesting adventure for a few years. Yeah, that sounds pretty legit. Um, nice. I'm glad you figured out the life plan.
2: Mm.
0: It feels kind of good, really, because like, did, like I've been lying awake at night these last, like some, some nights this week thinking, uh, so, because I. I I had like four days off work randomly because of annual leave and sort of days kind of adding up. And I was thinking each morning that when I was when I was waking up, I was like, what's my what, what's my icky guy? What's my reason for getting out of bed in the morning? Yeah. And I was sort of thinking, well, I guess I could make a few videos, but I filmed like eight videos yesterday. So I, could, I guess I could just play some PS4, play some Horizon. <laughs> I guess I could stream it and that would be somewhat... Pro- and I just had this like very sort of odd sensation of not really having an aim, more like, well... Everything's sort of going great, really, on the YouTube front. Yeah. <laughs> Just kind of making a few videos a week, and that's all fine. Um, and then I was really concerned that come August, when I'll be unemployed uh, and kind of going to work will no longer be my reason for getting out of bed in the morning. Like, uh, well, what am I going to do? Then there's a big void. Yeah. Then there's a huge void. Yeah. So I've been reading all these articles and stuff about the void <laughs> uh, of these people who've like were, were chasing the hashtag passive income lifestyle for a very long time. Yeah. And then they achieved it and they realized, hang on. <laughs> uh you know just because i can stick it to the man it's now like my life hasn't suddenly become more magical and meaningful yeah <laughs> uh, i gotta do something with my time yeah and then there's a few articles from like nat Eliasson and mark manson about how they they kind of travel the world for a few years and lived that nomadic lifestyle yeah and then mark manson has a really good one he, he talks about how um he's you know he's he's not really excited by parties anymore because he's been to like you know the biggest parties in the world he's been to like the carnival in rio de janeiro but the things that he finds useful fun in life now are just having a barbecue with some friends at home or yeah. attending a birthday party or something yeah <laughs> um but i suspect i suspect it's sort of like that thing i th- who who is it is it like jim carrey who says that um i wish everyone could become rich because then they'd realize that uh it's not the answer yeah i'm, I'm sure lots of people similar yeah. <laughs> sentiments so I, I i feel it's sort of sort of like that that once you've once you're living this sort of nomadic passive income lifestyle and yeah. hashtag living the dream you realize that actually <laughs> uh i quite like to settle down and have a wife and kids and just <laughs> yeah. Pay the mortgage and work at nine five <laughs> 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 so, so so it sort of goes full circle. Um but no, now I have something to work towards some some sort of bigger project that I'm Right. Some sense of like meaning. Some sense of meaning. Yeah, a reason to get up in the morning to do my Anki flashcards. Yeah. Uh more on skillshare.com slash not overthinking to check out my class on Anki.
1: I still don't understand the like I mean. It, It seems like if you just want to do medicine kind of part-time, and by part-time, let's be real, it's not going to be like four days a week. It's going to be like one or two days a week. Uh, More like two or three days a week, yeah. Really? Yeah. Three days a week is a lot. Is it? That's three, that's like half the week. (laughs) (laughs) That's really the the best use of your time, or or even the most fun use of your time. I mean, if it's, It, it seems like a... It's one
0: of those things that you can always kind of change your mind on, and you can sort of tweak based on how much you're enjoying it, such how much you're learning.
1: Uh, sure. I, think, I
0: th- think in the early days it's useful to do more because then you're, you're actively kind of learning more. You're more on the learning co- on the steep bit of the learning curve, and then over time you can cut down the hours if you like. And if you find that it's fun, then you've, you've got the option. But take, taking this exam to move to the US seems
1: like quite a high fixed cost for this thing that you don't actually care that much about, and it, it almost feels like you, you're just des- desperate for some something to do it's like oh cool there's an exam i i know how exams work (laughs) that'll uh that'll pass
0: the time for a few months or something you know pretty much so um my friend uh rohan said something similar he said he said it it sounds like you need something to do this is something to do (laughs) therefore you're doing it (laughs) yeah it it really feels like that (laughs) and
1: yeah I, i guess it comes down to like what actually is the sort of time and effort cost of taking this exam are we talking like six months of studying every day? Are we talking like one month of studying every day?
0: Are we talking like nine months of studying a few hours every day? What? <laughs> is that a lot?
1: That's a lot, dude. <laughs> Are you serious?
0: What's wrong with that? Uh, st- studying is fun. Is it the most fun? <laughs> well, it's probably not the most fun, but it's, it's, it's quite fun. Damn, all right. And I think like, once, well, once I've made the decision that, yes, I do want to stay in medicine, at that point it simplifies a lot of the other decision making so it's like okay cool do i want to i've been given that i want to stay in medicine do I want to go to the, the uk route or the america route um or yeah, what, what's good about doing sort of medicine the america
1: route i mean the main appeal for most people is the money but presumably you're comfortable from from all your non-medical stuff so like what's the point of grafting through these exams to just get
0: a slightly different job um mostly for the adventure really like it would the be adventure of doing an exam the adventure of kind of trying to move to America. It's just, it's just kind of, kind of fun. Kind of funny. There's like a million countries. Yeah. All right. Don't write in and tell me
1: that there's not actually a million countries, <laughs> but there's, there's lots of countries. Like, sure. What, what do you mean? Like, why, why would you choose this one where you have to spend nine months studying for
0: an exam just as an entry requirement? So in most countries you have to do some sort of, there's some sort of work required to get in. Okay. Um, I don't think I'd want to do it in a, I don't know, in a country like Cambodia, for example. Sure. Like, so there, there's there's a, a, a subset of countries where a medical qualification is sort of internationally recognized as being legit. The UK is sort of one of them. The US is kind of the gold standard for most places around the world. Canada is another one of them. Canada is like, apparently, like super hard to get into as an international because of all, they've like, they've hardly got jobs for their own people. Okay. America, we've got friends there. We've got family there. There's YouTube collaborations there. It's sort of the part of the world where the most of my audience is in um there just feels like there's all sorts of benefits about having this at least this association with america for at least a few years i'm not saying necessarily to live in forever yeah um the american residency program for training is fairly short like three or four years in the uk it's like eight years like you know there's yeah yeah okay yeah i guess that kind of makes sense it seems to make sense all right that's pretty cool i'm glad you've got it all figured out yeah man So I started doing uh, Pathoma, which is this pathology revision resource like last night. And I finished one of the chapters this morning. And it's it's just really fun (laughs) (laughs) Because because it's like, I'm, I think, I think if I were doing, if I were learn, I think when you're a medical student and you're learning all this stuff for the first time, it is not that fun because you, it's all, it's all very, it's, it's sort of like learning how to code without having a project. Right. Um, the, the only thing you're doing is at the end of it you're like okay well i just need to be able to pass this test and sort of regurgitate all this information but now having worked as a doctor for two years and and revisiting all this stuff i'm thinking oh yeah that actually makes sense and yeah, yeah. i'm glad i understand this now uh, sort of like when i do courses on brilliant in computer science like given that i already know how to code it's kind yeah. of helpful to yeah, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to see the first principles so it's just generally kind of fun Nice. And so I've been planning a kind of like what my ideal day would look like, uh, from, from August to the 4th <laughs> being like, right, wake up at six o'clock in the morning, go to the gym. No, you do your med, you
1: do your thankfulness practice and you no. no, 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 no. <laughs> Wait, I'm
0: coming to that. Oh, okay. come on. Wake up at six o'clock in the morning, go to the gym, preferably cycle to the gym, which is like a 20 minute bike ride. And then at the gym, do a workout and then do a little swim and do a little spa session. And in the spa, I do my meditation and thankfulness practice Ah, (laughs) on the iPad and then go to the the gym's restaurant, grab a cheeky latte, grab some breakfast, do my thousand words of writing for the day, do kind of 20 minutes or like two Pomodoro's worth of Anki flashcards for my stuff, maybe do some practice questions, cycle into town have lunch in town, sort of maybe hang out with someone for lunch if people are around in town, and then do some more work slash writing slash video stuff, then go home, film a video or two, and then do gaming and streaming in the evenings. Uh, Yes, that's my life sorted. That sounds great. I mean, if you could pull that off every day, that sounds really good. (laughs) Yeah, so that's what I've been sort of uh, dreaming about. I wonder if it's really that easy. I'm just like, this is the plan and I'm going to do it. I think having something to work towards means that the, the plan is more likely to happen. Yeah. And as soon as it becomes like a routine that, yeah, I just get up and, and then I go to the gym. Yeah, like, yeah. Kind of like I get up and go to work. It's, it's not an option. Yeah. <laughs> so, nice. yeah, I think, I think it'll be fun. Good stuff. Uh, why don't we get
1: started with today's episode? So th- there's a few different things I'd like to talk about. Sure. The first is a couple of responses that we had to last week's episode, which was about uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and sort of social justice more generally. So uh, we had a couple of interesting responses. Uh, the first was a series of... Uh, a series of hate mails from a listener to uh, to both the not overthinking email address and my personal email address but the impression I got was that her beef was primarily with you oh, um, okay so let me try and get these emails up to be honest I don't think it's um you know I'll, I'll just remind myself I, I I read through them I'll remind myself what they were about but I don't think it's necessarily useful uh, for
0: anyone if we just like read out the entire thing. Um, okay but like you know our preamble at the start wasn't particularly useful to anyone yet we, we do it anyway
1: uh i mean i think it was interesting
0: for you and i to talk about that uh yeah so on the hate mail front so so, so, so firstly are you sure uh, are you sure it's fair to characterize these emails as hate mail like, oh yeah uh, okay. <laughs> okay fine unilaterally <laughs> U- unilateral hate mail um i've not read them but but i remember when you messaged me a few days ago being like bro have you seen your hate mail i sort of had the sinking pit in my stomach and i was like oh really God, yeah <laughs> why and i I almost never get that feeling. It was sort of similar to the one where I started getting sort of, I I got all these these negative comments about my Microsoft surface review. Yeah. Um, because yeah, I think any hate mail that we would have got from that episode would have been justified to some extent. At least I was thinking in my head that, okay, I can imagine the sort of hate mail people are going to send in for this, for this particular episode. Yeah. And then you sent me that message being like, bro, have you seen the hate mail? And I was like, no, not yet. (laughs) And then I was like, Oh, this is interesting. Um, and I thought it might be quite fun just to read out segments of it on, on the podcast as like a first, first time reaction to it.
1: Uh, okay. Let me bring it up. <laughs> okay.
0: Because I think like at the very least th- the response to hate mail, the-, the response to criticism, the response to negative comments, et cetera, et cetera, is a generally interesting thing to talk about and a generally applicable thing. In that a lot of people ask like, why I don't care about the hate comments that I receive. I, I-, I get on YouTube videos and like, right.
1: Um, I mean, there's just a lot of them. It's gonna
0: be. It's gonna take up a lot of time. Really? Uh, okay. Let me just try and find. And it's all from the same person. Yeah. There's there's loads. What, like ten? Maybe like seven. There are seven emails from a single person. Yes. Where is it? I'm trying to find the first one. Is this the first one?
1: I think this must be the first. One. Is it gone? Ah, here we go. Uh, okay, I think this is the initial set of emails.
0: <laughs> the initial set.
1: Yeah. Okay, so. Okay, so it seems like one one of the objections uh, that this listener has uh, was the discussion about these statistics. So I think okay. in the in the episode last week, you mentioned something about like, oh, uh, you know, I've seen lots of people saying that actually, this, the if you look at the stats, uh, you know, it tells a different story or something. Uh, and so I think that's that's sort of one concrete thing uh, that this person objects to. Uh, I'm trying to find the other concrete things. That uh, that doesn't sound very hate melee. Mate, <laughs> it took me five minutes of scanning this email to be able to pull out <laughs> this concrete objection that I could
0: state nicely on the podcast. So why do you object to reading out the, 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 just like some flavors of the email? Or do you think it's sort of mean on the person who sent it in?
1: I think, yeah. I in a way
0: it, that it's kind of making fun of them. I, th-
1: yeah, I, th- I think that's basically, it. it's kind okay. of like, you know, it's kind of like making fun of the other person really. Okay. And I don't think there's much point in that. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so I think in terms of the concrete issues that this listener had, uh, she 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 takes issue with the the, men- the the discussion about statistics and she uh yeah so she like just just to give you an idea of the the sort of hate aspect of this hmm. for example in this first initial email she mentions the statistics uh and then there's a paragraph of stuff talking about uh you know her own personal experiences or something uh and that paragraph ends with uh, fuck you ali <laughs> and uh then in the second paragraph there doesn't seem to be any like sub- substantive sort of comments uh but she mentions you are a piece of shit just keep your mouth shut so look it's it's this kind of stuff oh interesting and like
0: the the the, the sort of stuff that if it were a youtube comment i would screenshot and share it to my instagram story
1: yeah exactly
0: oh, okay interesting
1: uh and then interestingly there's also like a a bit of a race war them versus us kind of narrative where uh i f- I think she, she sort of sees y- you and I as uh as being like uh in camp a which is like you know Indians Pakistani is that camp okay and then there's camp B which is black people and there's camp C which is white people okay and uh she she mentions um uh yeah there's a lot of like them versus us so like she mentions white people shot m l k jr and you really believe them over us uh she mentions that she thinks y- you are deluded. In thinking that you are a white man, I think on the podcast you mentioned that you feel like you benefit from a lot of uh, traditionally white male privilege, mm. uh, and I, I think that's what she might be referring to there. And uh, then she mentions that we should uh, address uh, ish, yeah, issues uh, in Indian and Pakistani culture before talking about the U.S. So she, she, I'll just read it out. She says. Address gang rapes in Pakistan and India, then maybe I'll respect you talking about the USA. Uh, talk about skin bleaching and femicide in... Uh, yeah, a bunch of swearing after that. <laughs> so uh, let me just try and find the other like, substantive uh, objections. I don't think we should like... Uh, okay, this sounds uh, like something where I should ed- kind of- Entertain ourselves with like, oh, ha ha, she's, we're getting sworn out or something. I don't think that's a very nice thing to keep indulging
0: in. Yeah. Uh, that's very nice of you. Uh, this sounds like the emails where I would <laughs> I would just post on my Instagram story <laughs> for the entertainment of the masses.
1: Uh, yeah, but I, you know, it's also a real person behind this. You know, she, she clearly feels a certain way about this. Uh, so she, she she mentions that. Uh, Damn, that's so nice of you. This is this is kind of interesting to hear. She mentions the two of you complaining complaining about black people for eighty five minutes was nauseating. We are not obligated to give a shit about performative activi- activism from people with bigotry in their past, and we are not a monolith uh yeah i'm I'm not sure what she's talking about she mentions that to label the whole of the black community as complainers is disgusting i don't i don't think we labeled anyone as a complainer i'm not sure what she's getting at uh and look to to some extent this is you know discussing this or whatever and like you know giving some kind of rebuttal it's kind of unfair because she's not here to kind of respond absolutely uh, but I, th- I think it's worth talking about a couple of things because I have seen them come up in other discussions. So, uh, I think in general, uh, so we've got a voice note as well, don't we? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But let's just talk about this first. Yeah. Then look, there's, there's not enough time to go through all the emails at all. Um, uh, but I get this general sense. I, I think, I think that the two concrete things which led to this person writing this email was your mention of having Ben Shapiro videos recommended on your YouTube. Yeah. Uh, that was like one thing which she kind of pulled out, uh,
0: clearly, I don't know what Molly's been doing on my YouTube account. <laughs> <laughs> God, there's Ben Shapiro videos.
1: All right. Yeah. So I, I, I get the impression that the Ben Shapiro, that the mention that you are like watching these kind of Ben Shapiro style. And for those of you who don't know, Ben Shapiro is like, uh, I guess most people would label
0: him an alt-right kind of guy uh is that right what, what does alt right even mean as opposed to just... i don't know.
1: i don't really know to be honest it's like that it's like this new wave of sort of it's like right wing but youngish people on the internet who watch youtube videos instead of like fox news or something you know
0: oh okay fair enough <laughs> Yeah, uh, that, I, that, that, that's that's my impression of it
1: yep anyway so ben shapiro is this kind of right wing guy who uh, uh disagrees with a lot of um you know lefty kind of stuff so i i think the the, the, the thing you said about you watching these kinds of videos on YouTube, plus the thing you mentioned about the statistics. Yep. I think those were the two kind of concrete things uh, which triggered this response. And uh, I think th- those two on, I think those two on their own are, uh, you know, maybe perfectly objectionable, and and there's, there's a reasonable kind of pushback to, you know, it's it's bad to watch those videos for this reason. Uh, you know, the statistics thing, you're wrong about it for this reason. I think that those are pretty reasonable. Yeah, fair enough. Um, but one thing I've noticed. Uh, in a lot of discussions uh, about this topic and other sort of sensitive issues, is that a lot of, I think, communication seems very dependent on how nice a person you think uh, the other person is. So let me let me just try and find, there's, there's a really good tweet. Uh, I can't get it on my phone because my phone is currently recording me. Does photos work here? Ah, uh, yes, it does. Ah, here it is. Uh, so this is, this is a tweet from... Uh, Uh, A woman called Sarah Constantine, who I follow on on Twitter uh, at S underscore R underscore Constantine. We'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, She mentions that if I want to write about a controversial subject, I spend at least half the space establishing that I'm a nice and empathetic person. It seems necessary. People who don't do it get attacked and misunderstood. Some people find it tedious. And and this is one thing I've kind of noticed that if you are, if you want to have any kind of discussion about any of these topics, you you do have to spend an awful lot of time establishing that, you know, you are a nice person in inverted commas. Uh, and if you don't do that, then uh, a lot of what you say might be interpreted uh, less than charitably. So, for example, um, and actually when we recorded the episode, I definitely felt a pressure to, you know, Uh, Established that, hey, look, the starting point is that we, yeah, we're staunch lefties here. Yeah, we're staunch lefties. We're very sympathetic towards this cause. We, we, you know, want to explore a couple of things. Mm -hmm. Um, and I feel like, yeah, I'm not sure how I feel how I feel about this thing. I because like I, I, I think it's definitely a phenomenon where if you don't do that, you will kind of be painted in a very different light than if you do do that. Um, and and so I was I. Yeah, I mean, what, what what do you think about that? Like, have, have you
0: found yeah, that to be true? Definitely, I think the phrase that always that I always seem to come back to, which is uh, another phrase that someone like Ben Shapiro would love to use, is the phrase "identity politics." Right. In that, it seems like with a lot of these well, seemingly controversial issues, um, a lot of it is based on what you want to believe and the kind of as as we, as we discussed last week, the moral righteousness with which you want to believe the thing. And so, given that, given that there's this element of I believe this, like uh, I believe this, therefore I'm a good person. But also, I'm a good person, therefore I believe this. The identity as a morally good and righteous citizen of the world gets so tied up within these particular beliefs that it means that in order to that if you if you hear an opposing viewpoint, in addition to the viewpoint, you've also got the Well, that person has the, has the opposite viewpoint to me. Therefore, that person is a bad person. Yep. And then when you paint that person with a brush of being a quote bad or evil person, at that point, like everything just gets mired up very much, very, very, very much. Yep. And I think when it comes to other controversial like you know Windows versus Mac, you you see less requirement to virtue signal before you can get into these debates because no one really is arguing that if you prefer Mac, you are actually a morally right, good and righteous person, and if you don't, you're you're not. Yeah. But when it comes to things like i don't know black lives matters or any any kind of feminist issues any kind of trans rights issues any anything along those lines that is very much tied up when because i believe this thing i'm a good person and also i'm a good person therefore i believe this thing yeah um and so i find it yeah obviously I, i like i was i was really concerned at the end of last week in that what it would have sounded like to someone who didn't know us uh specifically me because i don't like to speak for you as well what it, what it would have sounded like for someone who don't who didn't know my my default position as a staunch lefty it would have sounded like i was giving a lot of credence to sort of the ben shapiro right wing style of yeah. of things but you know obviously my default position was that i'm sort of like 98 percent lefty in, in in the opposite direction yeah therefore from from my perspective it's like well I, you know, I, I kind of don't want to bother establishing all of that stuff because what's the point? Yeah. And the more interesting discussion comes, comes to the, the kind of, the, the, more, the more nuances, the opposing viewpoint, yeah. rather than in saying that guys, you know, trust me, I'm a, nice, I'm a nice guy and all. I voted Labour, trust me. I even photographed my, my thingy and then posted it on Instagram before Molly messaged me being like, take it down, it's illegal. Yeah. And I had to Google it on BBC to make sure it was. and then, Yeah, and like, I, w- <laughs> I would have voted for Obama three times if I could. <laughs> <laughs> exactly <Yeah. laughs> I've got two black friends. Yeah. Um, all of that stuff. I think it's extremely tedious and it takes away a lot from this debate. Yeah. But I think I, it's sort of like what that, um, you know, the, that uh, history, uh, uh, apparent history professor tweeted that seems to be, have, been, have been going around, that, uh, you know, when it comes to these sorts of topics where one side of it, where where, the, the, where there seems to be a morally correct response and a morally incorrect response from people on both sides of it. It's really hard to talk about without fear of repercussions, fear of losing your job, fear of being canceled, fear of all this, all this and that. Yeah. So I
1: don't know. The thing is, I don't think it's, I don't think it's entirely unreasonable, right? So, you know, if you're having a discussion with someone about something, yeah, yeah, there's like a, there's like a a spectrum of charitability, you Mm -hmm. can call it, about like how charitable you are when you interpret what the other person is saying, right? And, you know, for example, on the, on the highest end of the spectrum might be someone that you have a crush on and anything they say you view it in like the best light and you think their jokes are really funny uh, and that they can't possibly say or do anything wrong. Um, And on the other end of the spectrum is someone who you see as being from a rival tribe to you where you kind of see them as a bad person and stuff. And so whatever they say, you will, uh, you know, have a
0: a very uncharitable interpretation. Mm. And, you know, (sighs) is there ever a value in not being towards the charitable end of the spectrum? I don't think there is. Uh,
1: po- look, po- possibly. So, for for example, let's say I was talking to, uh, or, or rather, let's say let's say two people are having a discussion. One person uh, is one person might be some might be a sort of like the the, the kind of person who sent us that email who very, feels very strongly uh, about this particular issue and has clearly um, spent some amount of time thinking about it and experiencing it firsthand. Uh, And let's say they're having a discussion with someone who, uh, you know, let's just say some like, you know, random kind of white person who's just turned on the news for the first time in his life. uh, And his default response to this stuff is kind of like, you know, what's the big deal kind of thing. Right now, if that, if that sort of, uh, if, if that white person in this case uh, voices some objections, like, oh you know but the the statistics or whatever or like you know oh how about the looting though then you know be, based on the kind of identity view of things where that person is like you know on on the other side of the identity politics spectrum uh it's not unre- you know it, it's kind of useful to understand that because then it's a very different discussion right like for example if you know th- there are there are sort of um a, a number of sort of what's the word? I don't want to say intellectual is a weird word, but, you know, intellectuals, shall we say, who are black and who might, uh, you know, who who, who certainly sort of sympathize with some of the more right wing stuff, you know, Uh, there are certainly kind of some black people who would say, you know, who would be big on like the statistics statistics stuff and say that like, actually, the stats are kind of complicated, maybe. uh, And it, if, for example, you're having a conversation with that person, then the fact that they are black, it does tell you something. It tells you that you know they've experienced this stuff firsthand, and and given all of that, they're still saying this thing. And so I would I would view that I would view the black person saying that in a very different light to the white guy who just turned on the news for the first time. Okay, sure. And and you can assume much you you can assume much more good faith from you know in this case the, the the black person who's who's making exactly the same point uh as the um the sort of basic white person if you
0: will right what do you mean by good faith uh g- good faith as in uh because my definition of good faith would be uh seeking to understand and talking from a place of uh, and and talking given all of the information that you currently hold and therefore, I would say that the the, the 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 white dude to turn on the news for the first time and is like, yeah, but what about the stats or what about that looting though? My default position would be to say that they're operating from they're operating in good faith. There's they're genuinely trying to understand what's going on, and are unable to understand what's going on because of the stats situation and the looting situation. And so, if our objective is to change that person's mind or to help them understand, then interpreting their lack of understanding as charit- as charitably as possible, rather than you know, fuck you, you piece of shit. You know, you have no idea what, 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 what I'm going through, which sort of kind of goes into the tone policing thing. But like, you know, I think we we established in the last episode that if our objective is to change people's minds, then it's more helpful to kind of talk to them on there in 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 the language that they understand. I don't think there's any less good faith coming coming from this white dude to turn on the news than there is from the black guy who says about the stats being a thing. Okay, maybe good faith was the wrong term, but... As in, the, the, so I, 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 I accept that if there is like a, a black conservative person Using the, the the stats argument, one would hope that uh, th- th- there is some. W- I agree that it probably would carry more weight because you know that this black person has probably experienced at least some degree of the systematic oppression slash implicit racism that a lot of other pe- black people would quote complain about. Complain being the wrong word, but you know talk about it at least. Um, but going back to my original point, I, I don't think I don't think it's ever useful to not interpret people's views charitably and what i'm thinking of in a completely like non-controversial setting is that for example people who watch gary vaynerchuk for the first time are going to think this guy's full of shit like, these of of air, like <laughs> yeah. what the hell is going on and it is it's it's like actively their loss by not interpreting him more charitably like it, okay yeah yeah look no you no know, i i I, so, I i obviously totally agree with this in sure. general however i i do think there is a
1: bit of a difference okay in that like for example okay m- maybe charitably again is the wrong word but the conversation to be had with a black conservative who's talking about the stats is a different conversation than the conversation to be had with uh you know uh, sort of a, a basic white person who's who agreed oh, yeah absolutely you know that's just that, and that's that's kind of what i mean that like having it, a conversation on different levels sure yeah the the identity politics lens is it's kind of useful in that sense right it's 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 it's, so- it's somewhat useful
0: to inform like, you know, what conversation uh, you know, oh, yeah, do we need to be having. Here. Yeah, 100%. I'm okay. fully on board with that. I'm not sure what we were disagreeing about initially. What were we disagreeing about? I don't me? think we were disagreeing. I fully agree with the charitable thing. Yeah. I was just saying that like, it's not entirely unreasonable so you were saying to saying there's, view there's, things through the lens. Oh, great. So, so, so you were saying that there's this kind of spectrum of you viewing anything someone someone says, the most charitable end of the spectrum being, this is the person I've got a crush on. Oh, the person I admire on the internet, everything they say must be legit. Like, anytime yeah. Naval tweets something, yeah, yeah, even yeah. if you disagree with it, you think, oh, dear, you know, he yeah, 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 must yeah. know something about it. <laughs> and then on the other end, you've you got know what? Any... I will leave my wife, Naval. Thank you. <laughs> other end of the spectrum, anytime Donald Trump t- tweets something, right. even if he's tweeting, guys, the best way to get rich is to get famous, you're going to think, no, <laughs> <laughs> this guy this guy does not know what he's talking about.
1: <laughs> and that's reasonable. It's it for yeah, Trump versus you know Naval is 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 a joke and a meme at this point. <laughs> like Trump versus Naval is good. Like if Naval tells you something, you know, you you'll think, okay, this guy's probably spent some time thinking about it. he's probably, you know, fairly well reasoned in, in arriving at this conclusion. Yep. If if Trump says exactly the same thing, yep.
0: You know, the natural assumption would be to assume that Trump is just ch- chatting, chatting breeze, and hasn't spent any time thinking about the situation. Yeah, like, from people like us
1: interpreting, and yet
0: from a, a right-wing white intellectual person who's like full-on Trump supporter, they might be thinking, "Who is this like random Indian dude? Naval? He's an immigrant. Uh, <laughs> like, yes, Trump, you tweeted exactly the same thing. Yes, my boy.
1: <laughs> okay, no, but okay. For for example, just just as like a very extreme edge case, yeah. I think it's probably not terribly useful to interpret Trump's tweets very charitably, or the stuff Trump says, it's probably not useful to interpret it charitably. Useful to him? Sorry? Useful to him? Useful to the person reading them. You know, for example, you just said, is is it ever useful not to interpret things charitably? I think there are, like, obviously extreme edge cases like Trump where, yeah, it's useful not to interpret
0: it charitably. Okay, why? Sorry? Uh, uh, Help me understand. Like, what do you mean useful to the person reading it? As in, as... If I read a, a, a Trump tweet, if most lefties like me, like like me and you read a Trump, tweet, a Trump tweet, we think, oh, Trump again. Yep. I don't think that's particularly useful at all. I think it's actively unhelpful that we think of Trump's tweets. And no, no, Trump's. no, no,
1: I'm not saying that. Okay, I'm, I'm saying that, for for example, if Trump tweets something like, you know, he tweeted that thing uh, last week or the week before or something about like oh, China in all caps. Uh, no, that that was that was the, the, the that was week. yeah the week before. <laughs> he tweeted something about you know when 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 the looting starts, the shooting starts or something. Fine. And you know, if if he tweets something that is you know that can very obviously be seen and you know it's not clear you know, whether he he was actually inciting violence with his tweet. Some people think he, he was, some people think he wasn't. But for example, if he tweets something that is actually inciting violence, it's not useful for every, you know, for for example, half the country to sit around thinking, hmm, actually, you know, he could have meant it in a metaphorical sense, while like violence is just kicked off by the other half of the country who read his tweets and took it at face value, right? So it's, it's not useful in that, in that
0: sense, to interpret it charitably. So, uh, well, are you saying in in that context it's more useful to interpret it as the ravings of a madman? Uh, yeah, almost. I mean, oh, I don't know what you mean by ravings of a madman, but... I mean, that tends to be m- mostly how people view
1: Trump's tweets. I mean, interpreting it at, at like, face value. Do, you th- For example, if, if Trump tweets something, yeah. I think a reasonable interpretation is, or a reasonable way to try and interpret it is, okay, what message does this send to you know the american people or something or the world right and that message you know and that will help you understand what is about to happen as a result of this tweet if you try and read the tweet with the interpretation of what's what's the most charitable way uh i can interpret you know premier trump's tweet right now and oh actually you you might conclude man he really loves black people or something that that might be the most charitable interpretation that's not useful right like in in that context the most useful way to interpret it is to understand what most people you know what what actually is he saying and like what what takeaway will most people get do you understand what i mean
0: no the what I'm, okay so let's take some edge cases l- l- let's imagine trump tweets kill all the black people okay he's not going to he's, he's not going to tweet that but you know as as a hypothetical in that context, yeah, sure, fine. I mean, I, 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 don't think there is a charitable interpretation of that. But when it comes to a tweet like, when the looting sh- starts, the shooting starts, like it tells you something about his stance on, on looting. It tells you that half of America is going to support that general sentiment. Yeah, it tells you all sorts of things, and and so again, maybe charitable is, is, is the wrong word. But I, but I, I would, I would maintain that the non-charitable way to think about it is trump is an idiot he's he's evil he's he's mad which which is actually most of the lefties view of trump and lefties like us are absolutely flabbergasted at the fact that half of america voted for trump like it's just a completely like how on earth can that even happen what sort of world do, do we live in in, in in which that happens because everything trump tweets we view from an un, in an, with an uncharitable lens of this guy doesn't know what he's talking about this guy's a madman this guy shouldn't be in office impeach him whatever etc et okay
1: i understand what's going on here i think yeah. i think we're talking about the word charitable in different senses okay. i totally agree it's unproductive and not useful to you know there'll be people who like replied to trump's tweets trying to like dunk on him and you know yeah. uh, there's yeah. then like a circle jerk of like oh haha trump is stupid yeah. totally agree that's not productive or useful uh to, to either side
0: if if you want to call it that uh and that's not what i mean by charitable okay what do you all mean all, I, all i mean by charitable is like I think uncharitable is ascribing malicious intent where, where charitable is assuming that there's no malicious intent implicitly and it just being a case of, okay, well, as in, for example, an uncharitable way of viewing the conservative party's policies with with, like economic policy is to say these guys hate poor people yeah a charitable way of interpreting it is by saying well about 50 percent of the economists that you ask say that trickle-down economics is a thing and if you have tax breaks for the rich, ultimately that trickles down to the poor and that's why we've got this thing i think it's more useful to view it more charitably on the spectrum and saying that okay let's assume they have a good reason for doing this and that reason is not that they just hate poor people Yep. Equally, I think Okay, it, yeah, yeah.
1: I think Charitable yeah. was just a bad choice of words that let us down this thing. We're, we're not in any disagree with them. My point was just that, like, there is some information, there. there is some useful information to be
0: gleaned from the identity, identity politics, politics, politics lens. Oh, absolutely. That's it. That's of all course. I was saying. No, okay. the identity yeah. le- politics lens helps you understand why he thinks what he thinks, right. why half America agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Huge, hugely important. God, what a waste of time. We just we spent, <laughs> like, 25 minutes trying to figure that out.
1: Uh, okay, good. So we're on the same page there. But yeah, I think this, this is a really good point about, like... You know, if you, if you want to talk or write about a controversial subject, you have to spend a lot of time establishing that you're a nice person so that uh, people will sort of be charitable in your interpretations. And, and so back to the hate mail, which is what got us here, I feel like there were a couple of issues, uh, sort of a concrete issues, uh, which this person uh, brought up. And then kind of that it feels like that then like painted uh, mostly you. I've occasionally mentioned in this. Uh, but it, it is mostly you to be clean that's fine <laughs> that, that pa- painted you to just be like this uh you know bad person and i'll, I'll read out a couple more bits uh you know because s- you smug pseudo intellectual oh yeah uh f- accurate <laughs> uh this is pretty interesting actually yeah. she says i've seen your type before ali you are antagonistic and contrary because it makes you feel powerful and smart uh you do this to your own brother apparently uh but really it just means you aren't a good listener because maybe you have narcissistic personality disorder. Um, yeah. So like, yeah, I think this, this feels like a case of lots of uncharitable readings into the entire episode and you as a person based on a couple of things, which might be sort of disagreed with. Yeah. Fair enough. I think that was, uh, that was the main thing about the hate mail. Uh, there was actually on the topic of males.
0: uh, Oh, although on the topic of hate mail, I've been thinking about, like, wh- why does it feel mean to screenshot this email and post it on my Instagram story, whereas it doesn't feel mean to do the same to YouTube comments? It's because YouTube comments are public. And yeah. if someone posting them publicly, it's like, it's, it is now fair game for me to dunk on you. Yep. Um, and if it's, yeah, whereas a private email sent is probably not fair game for me to dunk on, which is why I was, I was thinking that, is this, because I was, I was thinking I, I, I'd want to post this on my Instagram just for bands, but if, if it felt weird. And the, and the reason I felt weird is because of the public-private thing. So if anyone, want, if anyone wants to dunk on me publicly, then please do, because then I can post it on my Instagram story, because it's just absolutely hilarious.
1: Uh, cool. So we got another email. I have, I'm i reading this for the first time, so just give me a second.
0: While you're reading that, in other exciting news, I've I've started to take existential risk more seriously. <laughs> really? Yeah. It was after listening to a Naval podcast <laughs> 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 and realizing that existential risk stuff is actually pretty
1: important. <laughs> All right, so when Trump says that <laughs> there's, yeah, exactly. there's an existential risk of China, <laughs> you don't listen. <laughs> uh, okay. So this, this other email was interesting. Uh, it's from someone who uh, mentioned that uh, they generally like the podcasts, uh, but they were a bit dis- disappointed with the last one mm. because uh, I, I think they feel like we didn't, uh, we didn't dwell on the, the statistics side enough. Uh, and we kind of were too, too left leaning basically uh, and oh, wow. apparently, I, Taymor kind of shot Ali down after the first sentences into the discussion about the statistics stuff. Uh, and we should have... Uh, yeah, they would have uh, found a more diverse discussion, especially uh, with more statistics and data points about this stuff to be quite interesting. Um, yeah, I agree. Maybe that would have been interesting. The thing the thing is, like, we, we actually
0: aren't terribly well read yeah about we the didn't know anything stuff. at all like, i was just saying that i I watched a few steven crowder videos that right, seemed, yeah. seemed to cite fbi statistics and they seem pretty legit <laughs> and I, th- yeah, I think when it comes to the statistic yeah. stuff
1: i'm hugely skeptical of it in general i think like you know you are you should it, skeptical of the stats yeah if you if you want to go down that route you really have to spend a lot of time digging into it and understanding every little detail and nuance about what what the numbers are how they were collected and all this kind of stuff I think for me, the status stuff is is very like all or nothing. There's there is no point like half arsing it or partially arsing it because uh, it's just far too easy to, to reach the wrong conclusions. Uh, so we, I, I pref- that that's why I, I actively wanted to shut it down because I think like it really is all or nothing. Uh, anyway, so that that w- those are the two kind of hate mail things. We also we also got like a really interesting voice note from. Uh, a new listener who's actually the the father of uh a long-time listener let me try and find this ah yes here we go so this is a 15 minute long voice note uh so we'll we'll play the whole thing now and we'll probably like cut the sort of main points or interesting bits uh and put it and and play it right now in the audio uh, during the podcast okay
2: hello not overthinking podcasters my daughter Alice sent a link to your excellent podcast, and I listened for the first time today, and I'm a new fan. I'm 51, I'm probably outside your target demographic, but I used to be a right-winger, and you asked for audio feedback, so here it is. Feel free to ignore it, use it, whatever. This is feedback to your episode Racism, Social Justice, and Figuring Stuff Out, released on 7th of June 2020. Here's the short version, because I tend to go on a bit. Three points. One, there's a very good BBC podcast on the numbers released on the same day that your podcast was released. Under laboratory conditions, with identical circumstances, black people are three times more likely to be killed. Obviously, people didn't actually kill them in the laboratory, but, you know, using scientific conditions. Uh, Racism is simple. It's measurable. It's been proven time and again in laboratory conditions. So don't be fooled by the it's complicated story put out by right-wing think tanks and across the media. The problem is not complicated. The reasons and the solution might be, but the problem itself is very stark. Two. Now take this from an older listener. Please keep left-wing, especially when you get older and get tired of fighting. A lot of people are then persuaded by slick but misleading statistics that can be traced to right-wing think tanks. Don't fall for it. Which leads to my third point. If right-wing arguments ever do seem persuasive, this is due to vastly greater funding. I've watched the rise of the think tank and capture of the media for almost 50 years now, including a degree in film and media back in the 1980s. My point is that persuasive rhetoric and sound logic are not the same thing, as you know. You ask how deep thinkers can justify racism. Now, in my experience, the more thoughtful ones justify it by saying that civilization is fragile. They say we're only a step away from barbarism, and all your touchy-feely stuff will cause anarchy. They say that however bad a thousand deaths are, they are nothing compared to what would happen if the system broke. They say that life is just tough. Now, I have a racist friend who's a very deep thinker. He has to get up very early in the morning to do a tough, skilled manual job. His view is that life is just tough. Man up. Find a way. The Asians do it, he says. They are a different race as well but they just knuckle down, work ridiculous long hours, fit in, work hard, and eventually, after a couple of generations, they're doing really well. Now this is based on the I-earned-what-I-have theory, which is superficially appealing but does not stand up to close examination in my view, but it is a good seek into why I used to be right-wing and why I'm not now. Okay, about me. My name is Chris Tolworthy, I'm an aged amateur game developer. As a teenager, I was very right-wing, although I didn't realise it. My old economics teacher used to call me slightly right of Genghis Khan. And this is why. I was fascinated by compound growth. I believed that people create wealth through their hard work, and I believed that stability was the key to prosperity. Now, these things are, of course, true in a narrow theoretical sense, one that's easy to understand. But when you look at it in more detail, it's nonsense. So when people are busy taxpayers, or they're very busy podcasters, you know, who maybe get exhausted with the constant battle of some time when you're 30 or 40 or whatever, it's very easy to pick up these theories and think, wow, you know, I understand economics now, I understand the world. And you think that Ludwig van Mises must have been right. But history tells a different story. As primates are actually not very interested in growth. All the research shows that we're interested in having the same or more than the next ape. And that's the basis of economics and history, and that's why so much of it is based on enslaving others in a hundred different ways. As a rule, we do not create wealth. If you factor in environmental and long-term costs, almost no industry is profitable. It's called externalities, or you can call it stealing. It's the basis for the economy. As for stability, that I also believed in as a teenager, unequal societies are by their nature unstable. And it's the instability that gives the right wingers their money, mainly due to the precarious stress at the bottom but also the opportunities for rapid acquisition at the top. So in a nutshell, that's why I'm a right-winger, or rather why I was a right-winger, and why I then realised I was an idiot. Oh, and by the way, I also have mild autism, which is why I'll probably say far too much, and which means in the highly unlikely event that you email me and say, fancy a live interview, I'll go running and hiding with pillows over my head. Um, So, Sorry. Okay, the rest of this is what I wrote to my daughter, so I'm just going to read the emails. First one. I'm listening to the podcast now. I'll catch up on earlier episodes later. Excellent stuff. Thanks for recommending it. I'm so glad it's not American or Australian. Here I am, prejudicing. Even the best US and Aussie podcasts seem to be either dumbed down, like NPR, or the I do science. Therefore, all my opinions are founded on bedrock, such as Sam Harris. And that's not how science works. Science is about narrow focus, and hard sciences are especially focused. So, unless you're an ecologist or a social scientist, then your science-based morality is probably dangerously narrow, in my view. Now, both the Dumbed Down podcasts and the Hard Science podcast, they're just too triumphalist and condescending for my taste. But I suppose triumphalism is also just the American culture and the Australian culture. It's similar due to a similar history of stealing lots of land and still not realising why that is a bad thing. Sorry, I'm reading this. I'm I'm such a prejudiced person. Okay, back to reading. Anyway, very happy to see this is a British podcast and not dumbed down and not a me science, you dumb. Second email. I'm 20 minutes in and interested in how one of the two has swallowed the right-wing talking point at It's complicated and he guesses that maybe 50 deaths over the last five years. Glad that the other presenter is pushing back. I hope he comes back really hard with the stats because it's not complicated. Numerous studies have shown that under identical circumstances, being black means you are three times as likely to be killed, far more likely to have a bad outcome in every way, and so on. It's not complicated. It's been proven in blind studies again and again, it is simple. To most Americans, black lives matter one third as much as white lives. As for the 50 deaths, that depends on how you count them, but by most counts it's more like in the thousands. That BBC link has the details. It's to The Inquiry, Radio 4, Sunday, 7th of June, 8pm. You can find it on the BBC website at bbc.co.uk slash programmes slash M000K6H3, or lowercase. Another email. I'm listening to the podcasts and more. 30 minutes in. Very impressive. Between the 20 to 25 minute mark, when I thought they would get into big statistics, they didn't. And at first I was like, do your homework! But as they talk some more, I think they have the right approach. This podcast illustrates why an arts education matters. Instead of the usual lies, lies, and statistics, where each expert will shout the other one down with his cherry-picked facts, they're able to look at it at a much higher level. And they talk about who we trust, our priorities, stuff that matters. Now, sure, STEM topics are great, but they breed narrow minds. If you want real thinkers, you want the arts. Anyway, my point. They mention how right-wing commentators can make very convincing arguments if you listen a lot. Now, as somebody who has listened to a ton of these arguments, and keeps a lot of right-wing friends on Facebook, I would say this is an illusion, though it may have been true 30 years ago. This is not simply the case I've grown up, and know everything seems smarter when you're a teenager, but it's part of the objective changes since 1980 that I often mention. Here are some examples. When I was at university, I was always in the library reading politics and science, This was back in the 1980s. In fact, I was reading science and politics far more than I was reading any coursework I was supposed to be doing. Now, the educated magazines, the ones that were worth reading, they fell into three categories. First, you had the right wing, like The Spectator. Second, left wing, like The New Statesman. And third, you had the super-educated, like The Times Literary Supplement. There were also some very well-informed news sources like Private Eye and The Economist, but they avoided the big issues and focused on current events. Now, I'm no expert, but I was in their position 30 years ago. I mean, the podcaster's position back when I was young. I saw the right wing, I saw the left wing. It seemed about the same. Now, to illustrate the intellectual world back then, by a curious coincidence, both the spectator, the right wing, and the new statesman, the left wing, back in the 80s, once had a section for light relief. And I found copies of them where they both asked readers to write spoof Shakespeare stuff. So this is quite a good way to compare the two readerships. Now, the Spectator results were just miles better than the New Statesman ones. These people really knew their Shakespeare. It was hilarious. It was really great stuff. Now, they knew their Shakespeare largely because, throughout history, learning the classics has been the way for rich people to signal they have money. And I'm sure the left-wing mag was better in other ways. But the point was, on this topic, a direct comparison, the Spectator, the right-wing magazine, blew them out of the water. But the point was, back in the 1980s, yes, right-wing, left-wing discourse you can get some pretty good stuff on both sides. And it's very easy to listen to one and be convinced, listen to the other, be convinced, and so on. And you can go deeper and deeper and deeper. It takes a long time before you start to think, wait a minute, you know, one of these things is not like the other. So what happened? What changed? Now, you may have heard of somebody called Margaret Hilda Thatcher, smiley face. She made everything about money. Every law, every business transaction became cutthroat competition. This also came at the time of new printing technology, Remember, I mentioned my film and media degree. This was a really big thing at the time. You had to publish and you had to get readers quickly. There was just no time for building a reputation. Now, the right wing was perfectly on board with that, and the result was that all magazines became about winning. Now, the easiest way to get readers quickly is through getting people ideologically outraged. You certainly don't want to imply that your enemy might have good ideas. It was a race to the intellectual bottom, and the quality on both sides left and right declined. This was back in the 80s, and there was a time when Boris Johnson rose to prominence. He was telling lies about Europe to get right-wingers angry. He was a classic example of what happened at that period. All surface, no depth. Now, he did have a party piece of reciting a few pieces from the classics, so he could sound clever and avoid talking about issues, which was kind of like a parrot who can repeat Shakespeare at a high pitch and then poo on your floor. But then, of course, the internet happened, and deep thought was over, at least in public discourse. Now, meanwhile, in America, the right wing had perfected its wedge issue strategy. They were working on this throughout the 1970s It really came into its own when they got uh, Reagan in power. So very well-funded think tanks, they found that just the right topics would trigger poor people into voting for the rich. You see, it used to be the poor people would go to church and the minister would be educated. And you got really great people like Mr. Rogers and Jimmy Carter. They were both ministers who went on to great things. And that was mainstream religion up until the late 1970s. But they were replaced by tv evangelists who were screaming about the evils of abortion. Now at the same time that religion was dumbing people down the think tanks were pushing to get evolution out of schools and have more and more people home schools for religious reasons and to defund the regular schools to take money away from libraries and so on. Everything to dumb it down. Now why would they do this? It wasn't because they were evil, well they were, but it wasn't because they're evil. It was intellectually consistent to them because they saw only one purpose in education, to work for an employer, or to get money yourself. Money was everything. And from their perspective, being compliant was far more valuable for an employer than learning to question. And being able to duck and dive and find the angle to get the money, that was the best thing of all. So all these big employers, they wanted people to be compliant, to be desperate, to work hard, not think about anything that wasn't their job. That's what they wanted. So they wanted good employees. They did not want people who were going to question and create trouble and ask for more money, of course. They played a very long game. They had a great success with getting Reagan in power, and, of course, he then changed a lot of the laws. And now we have Trump or whatever corporate puppet comes next. And this is the end game. My point is that the level of discourse has really declined over the last 30 years. But both sides work very hard and sounding superficially good. The think tanks, they put out talking points, and whatever statistics are needed for a busy person who can only read for, say, half an hour. So both sides then look convincing. The left wing looks convincing because it's got all these academics. The right wing looks convincing because it's slick. It's got the statistics. It's got the talking points. Now, during all this time, a few people still do care about deep thought. You remember my third category, the super-educated people who like write the Times Literary Supplement. Now, they tend to be left-wing, or mildly right-wing, but politics moved so far to the right in the 1990s and 2000s that the old thoughtful right-wingers now sound left-wing. But how can one underpaid and overworked professor compete with a dozen highly-funded think tanks who can swamp the media with pre-made arguments? And how do they compete with billionaires who buy up all the mainstream media? And when they can't buy up the mainstream media, like with the BBC, the millionaires and billionaires will lobby to make sure that their political appointees are at the top. And they then use their newspapers to attack the BBC and to make journalists terrified to say anything critical or they'll be crucified in the press and online. So that's my main point. The level of discourse has declined over the last 30 years, 40 years. If you're getting this, 2020. So if you see something about Black Lives Matter and the graphs look convincing, it's because you're probably very busy and don't have an hour, two hours, three hours to trace every source of data. And then you'd find your audience wouldn't understand what you're talking about. Because there are issues with sampling, with mode versus mean, with confidence levels or distribution and so on. And it's all provided by very well-paid think tanks. There's a lot of money in this, in getting their people in power and their employees doing what they want their employees to do. Now if you subtract all the think tank funded professors from academia, the ones who remain, the highly educated people, the ones who are not actually paid to think a certain way, you'll find they're almost 100% left-wing. Some are only moderately, some are more so. But it's true what they say. Reality has a left-wing bias. And that's it. OK, to recap my emails and all this stuff I've been saying. 1. Racism is proven in the laboratory. Under identical conditions, a black person is three times more likely to be killed. 2. Please keep being lefty. Right-wing arguments are a lot worse than they look. They're a lot worse than they used to be, and they were never very good. And 3. Those right-wing talking points are from very well-funded think tanks academics who are not funded by think tanks all tend to be left-wing and that's it thanks for listening It's send
1: okay cool so we just listened to the the 15 minute or so voice uh, voice note we'll, we'll just put the whole thing uh in the episode because it, i think it was all actually pretty interesting uh there was not much dead time in there um so I, I i was making a note of what i thought were uh his main points uh the first was that you shouldn't be uh fooled by the it's complicated story um, and I think that's kind of, that That was the, the thing that you were saying in the last episode that, you know, it seemed really obvious. And then like you saw that some right-wing people were saying this and they were saying it's complicated. And yeah, so maybe it's complicated kind of thing. So he he thinks you shouldn't be fooled by that. Uh, I thought the really interesting thing was uh, the sort of more historical look at the, the sort of discourse over the past few decades. Uh, I think this, this had a bias towards um, the UK. Uh, but that's something I just like, yeah, I, I basically know nothing about how things used to be uh and his point was essentially that um that the level of discourse uh on all sides has actually declined significantly over the past few decades uh and that the media is relatively rigged by uh right-wing w- very well-funded right-wing think tanks that can sort of pedal their own uh, narratives and they can lobby to get their their own you know, people with their views at the top uh and he yeah he was saying that uh, in the 80s, there was there was actually good discourse on both sides. And it was this kind of situation that we talked about in the episode, where it's like, you know, you read from one expert on one side, and it sounds pretty good. And you read from another expert on another side, and it also sounds pretty good. He was saying that that was actually the case uh, in the 80s, according to him. Um, but... Yeah, since then, it's kind of declined mostly because of the whole attention span thing. Uh, and everything now is optimized to be digestible by a busy person in, in a 30 minute time span. Mm. And both sides craft their narratives uh, according to this. Uh, and the right, the, the right wing side uh, tends to also use sort of numbers and statistics. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I really think those are like an all or nothing thing any story can be told in a 30 minute time span with any set of numbers. Uh, And so uh, he thinks, yeah, he thinks the right wing arguments are a lot worse than they actually look and that you shouldn't fall for slick and misleading statistics uh, that ultimately come from just well-funded think tanks. and, And that persuasive rhetoric is not the same thing as sound logic, which is kind of what I was trying to, Expressed in the last episode, where I was, I was, I think I said something along the lines of, you know, it's it all sounds very good and sciency, and I think I think the, the stuff he said about science was really, really,
0: really good. <laughs> science, good, you dumb. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, me science, <laughs> me you science, dumb. you dumb. That's one.
1: Yeah, and like that, there is this kind of very like uh, hijacking of science almost where uh you know there there is this sense that you know i do science therefore all my opinions are founded on bedrock and objective truth and all this kind of stuff and me science you dumb kind of thing uh and he thinks that you know people like sam harris and jordan peterson they're like scientific uh you know badge kind of lends them all like far more credibility than it probably should uh so i think
0: those were the main points uh what did you think yeah i thought it was very good uh it, it it made a lot of sense um I think the the historical look was very interesting and that's kind of inspired me more to read uh, I think I think it would be interesting taking out a subscription to the Spectator and also the New Statesman just to uh, sort of see those two p- somewhat premium publications writing about this sort of stuff yeah. because the thing that concerns me is that I mean I get most of my most of my news through Twitter and obviously getting news through Twitter and reading a random article here and there is not is clearly not a substitute for actually being well-informed about any of these issues at all. Um, and so, potentially, for me, I need to kind of uh, broaden my uh, pool of stuff that I consume so that it's not stuff that fits into 280 characters because, obviously, that doesn't lead to any kind of nuance at all. Um, I think it's, it's interesting how... Can you turn the volume on this thing now? I think it's interesting how he said that as you grow old, stay left-leaning if you can because the default... The default motion is towards the right as people get older, as people start to start to start to have jobs and start paying taxes, start to have kids think about putting those kids through school and all that costs money. Like, you know, people are the most staunch lefty that they will ever be when they're at university. Uh, And then a lot of those people switch over to the right. So I think it's uh, that's something that I've always been a little bit a little bit wary of that. Like, why? Why is this the case? Is this purely is this pure self-interest? Or is it that as you get older, you understand more nuanced arguments and you're less uh, swayed by the groupthink, which is very much a thing in kind of left universities? Um,
1: That's a very interesting framing,
0: yeah. which I think is
1: uh, I think is very wrong. Oh, okay, <laughs> uh, so your your framing is that uh, there is one there is one correct side, and either when you're young, you're like blind to the truth, and you sort of become more aware of the truth uh, i don't know you can like see through the bs or something when you get older and that's why you switch views
0: uh that was kind of what you're saying right that was i I'm, i was saying okay no that's that's not quite what i'm saying <laughs> i was saying that there is this uh observable motion towards the right yeah, as fine. people that's get fine. older. but then you said i was saying why that might be the case I, I said i wonder if maybe the reason is that as people get older they become more self-interested okay i said alternatively perhaps it's the case that as people get older they start to be less involved in groupthink and therefore are more able to weigh both sides of, both sides of an issue. Ah, uh, okay. I'm not saying that's necessarily what happens. I'm yeah, saying yeah, it's yeah. one plausible explanation for, what, for, for why, why this might be happening.
1: Yeah. So I've been, I've been reading this book, A Conflict of Visions, which I mentioned. Uh, and that actually has a very good like way of looking at this. I'm, I'm only like, I don't know, 5% or 10% of the way through. It's a, it's a pretty long and dense book. Um, but essentially... Uh, I think the argument he's laying out and look, I, I, I'm very like early in the book. The argument he's laying out is that there are broadly two different visions of man that people hold. OK, the first and look, I, I'm completely spitballing. here. I don't have, I don't
0: have <laughs> notes for it. It's all good. <laughs> so <laughs> we trust that you're a good person. Read the book. We'll After do, all we'll... that stuff about, you know, there's a person on the end of that email. I think everyone has like you, you've got some good brownie points in, in your corner right now. No, no,
1: I'm not worried about that. I'm, I'm just worried about like mis- misrepresenting what, what this guy's saying. We'll do a big discussion on it when I'm done. But from what I from what I recall, he thinks there are there are two two possible visions of man. All right, there's the uh, there's what he calls the the unconstrained vision, uh, and there's what he calls the constrained vision. And broadly, the unconstrained vision of man is that uh, it is possible. You know, uh, currently. Uh, man is, is in a imperfect moral state, but it's possible for man to achieve like this moral nirvana where, uh, you kind of don't need, you don't need sort of, uh, you don't need to enforce things. You don't need to like control the people or anything because the people are at this moral nirvana where they will all act in, uh, sort of everyone's best interests and, and all this kind of stuff. That's the unconstrained vision of man. Uh, and then there's the, the constrained vision, which is that man is imperfect that's just the way it is. We're not going to become more moral than we are today. And so the point of organization of people is to kind of provide the right structures and incentives to make people uh, sort of accidentally help help the help wider society. Uh, and so the, the sort of constrained vision uh, is uh, is sort of underlies uh, a lot of you know more conservative leaning, uh philosophy economics and stuff like that adam smith his whole like just adam smith who i don't know i think he has a reasonable claim to kind of founding modern kind of capitalism or or this way of thinking about things in terms of markets and stuff uh his uh yeah his his whole capitalism thing is very much a uh very much assumes the constrained vision of man uh where you have to like you know, create in- incentive structures to get people to do things. Uh, otherwise they just won't be nice to each other, essentially. Uh, whereas a lot of the more kind of left leaning stuff. And he's mentioned some, some philosophers um, who, who, whose thoughts also kind of founded on this uh, is, ha- has more of the unconstrained vision where like we can become more moral, you know, over time uh, as people. And so the thing you're saying about like, you know, the reason you'll switch from left to right is either you become more self interested or, Uh, you're just able to see through the BS or something. Uh, I think this, this guy would disagree. And I think another way to look at it is that your vision of man changes. You might start off with a very optimistic, unconstrained vision of man when you're younger. They're like, oh, you know, we could be so moral. You know, we could be so nice to each other. Let's, you know, let's do that. And as you get older, maybe you reach the conclusion that actually... Oh, that's pretty hard. Ooh, I think man is fixed in, in their uh, immoral ways. And we need uh, organization to kind of force people to do nice things to each other. So, yeah, that's just uh, another way of looking at it uh, from this book. It's pretty good. Oh, damn. Sounds like I need to read this book. Mate, there's all sorts of these good books that I really want to read. But I just... all right, let's let's have it out. Why do you never read anything of substance? I've I recommended you so much genuinely insightful, substantial stuff. Uh, what? This one, for okay. example. I mean, apart from that, transaction analysis stuff from a yeah. couple. Yeah, you know, I mean, for, we, for a, we've a done a discussions on
0: that. It's, it's, it's no longer high on my priority list. Anything else that you've recommended that I haven't read?
1: Um, have you read the Wright brothers?
0: No. Right.
1: Why do you? I mean, this this has been this point has been coming up for basically since we started this podcast yeah. of me saying why don't you read anything substantial and you just being like oh well whatever I've got my fantasy I've got my Tim Ferriss and my self help books you know I make my YouTube videos from it like <laughs> yeah exactly don't you think there is something to be gained from reading substantial books
0: i think there is then why don't you do it because it's a return on investment thing
1: it's a okay, it's so a making what, the time for it thing what's what 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 is the return you see here
0: <laughs> the return is kind of useful output sorry the return in the short term is useful output what do you mean useful output do you
1: mean like concretely if i read the self-help book i can then make a youtube video and a skillshare course about it correct that is that's what you're thinking when you're reading these books yes Okay. (laughs) At what point do you think you might switch to a more medium or long-term view of trying to sort of level up your own thinking and Mm -hmm. (laughs) view of the world?
0: Uh, When I no longer have a full-time job and it's it's no longer a struggle to turn out three videos a week.
1: Okay. (laughs) Is that reasonable? (laughs) I don't know, man. This all seems very, very shallow and short-sighted to me. And actually, here's another beef. Here's another beef I have with you. This is a huge bias that you have, which I think... Uh, results in a lot of poor thinking on your part. Yep. You have a very strong bias towards what well, I think what what I call legibility. Yep. You know, you only focus on things which are perfectly legible. So you know, if you if you read this book, you know, if you read some like, oh, here's a new way to do note taking book. You know, it's a very legible thing to you. It's like, okay, I can read this book. Maybe my notes will get better. I can definitely make a YouTube video. I can make half a Skillshare course. You know, you you focus on 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 sort of things which are very obviously legible again with the stuff about statistics in the last episode this was my whole point uh, uh, the statistics and the whole like point counterpoint style discussion again it's just such a huge bias towards things that are legible and like there's an underlying assumption that the things that are legible are the only like things that matter almost and i just think that's like so untrue <laughs> and it, it seems like a lot of what you do is centered around this idea of legibility. Don't you think that's bad? (laughs)
0: Um, I think it's bad in the long term. I think it's very reasonable in the short term. Aren't you all about like long term thinking,
1: you know, ideally you want to kind of be living your life as if, you know... You, you do the same thing for the rest of your life or something sure. you have a go at people who have this mindset of like oh cool yeah once i quit my job then i'll do this or like oh once i get the promotion then i'll quit my job or whatever yeah. and you're saying the exact same stuff oh once i'm once i'm unemployed then i'll start reading substantial books or like oh, i'll do it at some point in the future you know like it just goes
0: completely against your whole spiel i don't think it does i think my spiel is more about what are your what are the things that you're optimizing for okay. what, what's the game that you're playing and what are the victory conditions of that particular game and I think it's very reasonable to have different seasons of life. Yeah. When, when you're in a season of life where you're working full time and struggling to kind of keep on top of the workload of, uh, yeah, a workload and air quotes of churning out YouTube videos and Skillshare classes, that is, uh, the, the, the victory condition for that is how do I maximize my units of output, are either videos and Skillshare classes that I can churn out, yeah. skillshare.com forward slash not overthinking. Knowing that this is a specific season of life, okay it's that season of life where you're thinking okay i, I actually don't mind not sleeping eight hours a night i'm, I'm actually going to deliberately only sleep six and a half hours a night because i know i can i can function by that maybe i feel a bit of a big room in the mornings but that's fine because it gives me an extra hour an hour and a half where i can get my workout in because that's a priority for me that is not a season of life where i think this is a good time to delve into you know an 800 page really 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 dense book that's going to require me to sit and think about this academically to actually have any sort of semblance of understanding it's a season of life where it's more like okay let me find the legible things let me find the low-hanging fruit because I've got this platform where I've got a fancy camera, I've got an editor who works for me, I can churn out YouTube videos about the legible stuff because it's the legible stuff that actually make the most difference to people's lives that I actually care about. Most students in the world, for example, don't know how to manage a calendar, don't know how to use a to-do list, don't know how to use an email app type really slowly. These are things that they can all improve on very, very easily. It's very low-hanging fruit. Most people in the world do not care about leveling up their thinking by reading some dense treaties about transactional analysis. It's like a niche thing. And I agree it's really useful for me for me personally to level up my thinking and ultimately will be useful for my content and to the stuff that I can help people on to level up that thinking in a way that takes in outside perspectives other than what's the best-selling New York Times bestseller in the self-help business book category. But right now, there's so much more benefit to be had in plucking the low-hanging fruit from the business self-help book category. And given that I have a limited amount of time and a limited amount of inclination to do this sort of stuff, it means that all these kind of, the, yes, at some point, I would love to be more well-versed about everything. It's just not high on the priority list right now, given the book, given the game that I'm playing and the victory conditions of the game.
1: Yeah, okay. I think that's reasonable. But like, when do you think this this season will end? I mean, you're saying now that, okay, you know, once I'm unemployed, yeah. I will do some more kind of, personal development stuff personal
0: development what, as in, that what in? that sounds a lot like self-help
1: a <laughs> uh, personal development as in like trying to level up your own thinking and trying to you know, read more substantial things
0: yeah okay that's literally the exact point this is like kind of why part of my thing is that okay well you know if i can do this kind of wake work we'll wake up in the morning go to the gym make sure that in the morning i do my writing a thousand words because that that'll help level up my thinking in some capacity make sure i can get my flashcards and question banks out of the way early so like later on in the day i'll kind of chill in a coffee shop and read something more substantial which is why right now i'm reading books like how to take smart notes because i'm i know that in preparing for this kind of season three of the vlog i.e this this kind of sabbatical that i've got where i've i've got a bit more free time on my hands i'll be able to actually get something out of reading a book like the like you like you're reading rather than reading five percent of it and then trying to spitball the rest of it for example
1: (laughs) all right fine that sounds pretty reasonable okay so where were we before oh yeah so we okay i
0: I think i I think we should draw this it's it's like three o'clock now (laughs) we've been going for like how, how long have we been recording for
1: uh, an hour and twenty-five minutes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But that—that that was basically the end. Yeah. We, we
0: we wanted to play this um this voice recording. Yeah, and no, talk th- about that a thank bit. Thank you very much, too. Uh, what's the name, Richard? uh Chris, Chris tollworthy Chris, thank you very much, Chris, for, for sending that in. That was like enormously helpful. Um, and it's nice having different perspectives. Yep. On this sort of stuff.
1: Cool. Uh, yeah. Let's let's call it to a close. We should have some lunch. Uh, let's just read a review. Oh, here's a. Yeah, we'll read a negative review. So we had a negative review uh, on the racism episode. Uh, The title was Privileged Dudes Talking About Racism. Uh, Zine W. from the United States of America said, I like listening to you guys in general, but the episode about racism lacks sensibility and you clearly show detachment from any sort of responsibility in the current crisis. You just regurgitate quotes from books from an outsider, comfortable seat, especially Ali. You need to humble down, dude, listen more, try to understand the perspective of another i'd love to hear a part two on the topic where you show some respect and a true effort in understanding the situation Ooh. interesting interesting um, uh, thank you design for for the review uh and thank you to you guys for listening and we'll see you next week bye oh yeah all right we can do th- you can you can send the video stuff to elizabeth or whatever to sort out but uh